0: Good morning. How's everybody doing today, man? I love what you've done to your living room. That looks really, really good. So glad that you're with us online today. Uh, the Bridge Church, and we're excited that God can use this medium to make a difference in the world. We're certainly living in times that are that are, can be scary, can be frightening. But our God is in charge, and our God knows what He's doing, and He's going to bring good out of this. I believe it with everything uh, in my heart. He's given us a spirit, not of fear but a spirit of love and of power and of a sound mind. And so we're excited that you're with us, whether you're alone right now, watching online, or you've got a group of people in your living room, or wherever you are, we're so glad that you're here. Let's lean into the Word of God for a few minutes, and let's learn what He wants to say to us today. Let's, let's just be, be honest right up front. There was a day, and in fact for generations in America, it was clear that the bottom line source of truth for the vast majority of Americans, was the Bible. It was the Word of God. In fact, when it comes to our early American fathers, uh, you can debate about their theology, but there's no debate about the fact that they believed in the Bible. They they, uh, they quoted it constantly. Most of our state constitutions in the early days of the forming of our nation include comments about the Bible, about God, about Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so, and so they quoted the Bible, and they expected their readers to agree with them because they knew that. That was the thing. Nowadays, um, Americans aren't just debating about whether this book is the source of truth. They're debating about whether it should even be read in public. That's the reality of the times that we're living in. The Oxford Dictionary uh, actually picks out words every year. They come up with a new list of words that have become coined in society and they've begun to uh, to be used as common language and they add them to the dictionary and then they always pick one every year that's the most common new word in society. 2015... Uh, the new word was emoji, and so that's become part of our world these days. That thing of emoji, but it hasn't been that long ago that it was here. 2016, you know what the the, the number one phrase was? It was a hyphenated word. It was post truth. The definition being that we're living in an age when when uh, uh, when no people no longer believe in absolute truth. That we're in a post truth era of human. Uh, condition, and that's why we're kicking off a little mini series today. That we're simply calling the word, and we're we're talking about word, either my truth or the truth. Is there a difference between those two phrases? And the reality is, there very much is a difference. You see, here's the problem: every time a society across history has has decided that they were no longer going to agree on the source for its moral compass that society fell apart every time. And so we find ourselves at a time, uh, perhaps more than ever before in our history, when we need to lean back into what is our moral compass. Pastor Alan Peacock, the pastor of our Smithfield Uh, bridge location, uh, tells a story about going raccoon hunting one time with some friends. And and those of you that don't know about raccoon hunting, you do that late at night and you do it in some of the thickest, swampiest parts of the the woods that you can find. And so they were out in the middle of the night in the dark and they're hunting and they realize uh, about two or three hours into the hunt that they... They're lost. They don't know where they are, and it's so dark they can't see their way out, and they don't know what they're going to do. And so they wandered and wandered and wandered until finally they heard a car horn as light began to break, and they realized that they were only a quarter of a mile away from the road the whole time. They just didn't know their way out because they didn't have a compass. Here's the irony of the story. They had a compass. They just left it in the truck that night. The problem is, guys, we've got to have a compass, a moral compass, to decide how we're going to move forward. And so, over the next three weeks, we're going to explore the Bible and its legitimacy as the moral compass for our lives and for our ultimately for our society. We're going to talk about why is it relevant. We're going to talk about how to apply it, and then we're going to talk about how to study it. And so I hope you'll spend some time with us over these next three weeks, and let's learn more about the Scripture. The, t- the question I simply want to answer today in the few minutes that we have together is can this book be trusted? I mean, come on. It, it, it was completed Uh, writing 1,900 years ago, can it still be relevant for for parenting today? Can it be relevant for how you manage finances today? Can it be relevant for your marriage, for how how you structure a church? I mean, could it possibly still be relevant? Uh, Or is some of it relevant and some of it outdated? That's what I want us to ask. I want us to explore for just a few minutes today. Let's start with what the Bible actually says about itself. And so uh, if you've got the Bridge NC app or you've got maybe an online Bible that you can go to, maybe you've got a print copy of the Bible there with you, it's going to be on the screens as well so we can read together. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. I like the way the New Century Version paraphrases it. Here we go. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching for showing people what is right wrong in their lives, for correcting faults, and for teaching how to live right. Now stop, because I want you to understand what we just read. It says, what is Scripture useful for? It's useful to teach you things you don't know about how to live. There's information we simply don't have until somebody teaches it to us. And the Bible says this is your source for that information. But it's not just that. When you get off the path, so life is a journey that we're going down. We've got a destination in mind. And so if you get off the path, the Scriptures will not only teach you what the path is, but if you get off the path, they'll say, well, wait a minute. That, that's not going to take you to where you're trying to go. It, it, it will show you that you've gone the wrong way. Then it says correcting faults. So so not only will it show you that you're in the wrong path, it'll show you how to get back on the right path to get where it is you're trying to go and then ultimately how to live right, how to stay on this path so that in fact that path takes you to the destination of an eternal life with Christ Jesus in heaven. Pick it up from there. Using the Scriptures, the person who serves God will be capable having all that is needed. And what does the word all uh, mean when it says all in Scripture? It means... All. It means all of it, having all that is needed to do every good work. Can that claim be true? I mean, is that really possible that it could be useful for every situation in life and useful to help you to live life in a way that is meaningful and powerful? That's what I want us to explore for just a few minutes today because the answer is yes, but I don't want you to take my word for it. What I want to do in the few minutes I've got with you is, is I want to give you some internal evidence that that's a true statement. I want to give you some specific evidence that it's a true statement. But first, let's just talk in general terms about why the Bible should be trusted. In my experience, there are, there are four general evidences that the Bible can be trusted. And I, and I experience that most people agree that these four things are true. Let's look at it together, okay? General evidence number one is it's remarkable in its writing. Some of you know, perhaps, that the Bible was actually written by some 40-plus different authors over a 1,500-year period, beginning in the desert of Moab and ending up on an island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. 66 books, and yet all 66 of these books have one common thread. They have one coherent theme that runs all the way through it. And that theme is God made you. You matter to him. He made you on purpose, with a purpose. All he wants is for you to love him back. He loves you more than you can even understand, and he just wants you to love him back. My, my seminary professor used to ask, is it possible for 40 people, completely unknown to each other, writing in different languages and in different countries, separated in time by three times the amount of time since Columbus discovered America, to produce a book with such a remarkable, consistent theme? The answer is no, unless... There, there was behind them one writer and one designer. You've got to admit, whether you live by this book or not, it's pretty remarkable in the way it was written. Second general evidence is that it's amazing in its honesty. Let's be honest, guys. If somebody came to you and said, you know, I want to write your biography, I'd like to sit down and interview you, and you give me information about, you know, how you've lived your life and some of the stories from your life, and then I'm going to write up your biography, most of us would leave some stories out. (laughs) There's a few stories we'd just rather not make it into the book, and you're know, just kind of let's just kind of gloss over that part of our lives. But the Bible doesn't do that. When you read the biographical information and even the autobiographical information from some of the characters in the Bible, it's just totally honest about who these men and women were. Let me give you a few examples. Abraham, who was the father of the Hebrew nation, lied by, lied like Pinocchio to save his skin more than once. Jacob, who was the father of the 12 tribes uh, of Israel, cheated his brother out of his birthright and then later cheated his father-in-law. I mean, this, that's, who, that's what he did. 2 Samuel gives a blow-by-blow account of an affair that King David had with Bathsheba that ended up in, in putting her husband in a position to be murdered. I mean, blatant honesty about what's going on. Even, even Jesus' own hand-picked disciples had some humanity. They, they, at one point, they even fought over, a couple of them fought over, who would be senior associate pastor of the Church of the Holy Rollers Jerusalem campus. I mean, they just it was amazing how they did that. Look at Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, 21. Then the wife of Zebedee came to Jesus. Her sons were with her. The mother bowed before Jesus and asked him to do something for her. So get the picture. Here's Jesus. Maybe they've had some dinner and they're sitting around and relaxing. And now now mama comes with her two boys, both of whom are among the 12 disciples. And she comes over with her boys kind of standing off, one behind each shoulder. And she just kind of gets down where Jesus is. And obviously she wants to ask him something. And so Jesus says, what do you want? She said, promise that one of my sons will sit at your right side in your kingdom and promise that the other son will sit at your left side. It kind of reminds me of my days of coaching little league baseball. You know, the kids were wonderful. The little league moms, <clears throat> it could be a bit of a struggle sometimes. Now, don't misunderstand me. The Bible doesn't pull any punches about the cost of sin. Nobody, nobody's saying that these things are okay. The Bible doesn't say they're okay but it's just blatantly honest about the reality that we're human, that we have imperfections, and yet God can use us. And I think that's the message ultimately that God uses imperfect people to do amazing things when we just simply align our hearts with him. The the book is remarkable in the way it's written. It is amazing in its honesty. The third evidence, generally speaking, is it's unprecedented in its durability. This book... Is frankly the only document that stood the test of time across the ages, and yes, there have been huge numbers of people who've dedicated their lives to getting rid of it. From Nero in Roman times to Voltaire in the 1700s, Voltaire being one of the leading philosophers of his day, he's he's quoted as having said, "The goal for my life is to make sure that this book is extinct in my lifetime." He built a warehouse in London and spent his life collecting Bibles and warehousing them until he could burn them to destroy them. He, he was determined to wipe the world free from this book called the Bible, and yet on his deathbed, he's quoted as having said to a Christian friend who had stayed with him through the years, he said, I've dedicated my life to ridding the world of this book called the Bible And as I face my death, I feel the flames of hell licking at my toes. No matter how many efforts have been made to get rid of this book, the reality is that from the day they started the bestseller list to this day, it's always on the bestseller list. Think about that for a minute. What other book ever written, uh, could make that list. In fact, let let me ask you: How many of you uh, have at least one Bible in your home? Come on, yes, you come raise your hand. Look around, at somebody. How many of at least one Bible in your home? Just you everybody has a Bible somewhere. Maybe it's grandma's, but you you got a Bible in your home. There's not another writing in history that could boast of that. I mean, William Shakespeare's collections. Or, 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 or the writings of Martin Luther, or, or the, the full collections of Pastor Jim's sermons. I mean, don't answer that one. Uh, you, I, nobody can say that, but the Bible is this prolific writing uh, across the planet and continues to be, some people would have you say, it's going away rapidly in America, but it just simply isn't true. The fourth general evidence then is not only is it remarkable in its writing and amazing in its honesty and unprecedented in its durability, but uh, I think the most amazing thing about this book is it is unequaled in its freshness. You would think uh, that it would get stale after a while. I've been reading this book for, I dare say, every day of my life for the last 49 days, 49 years. And yet, every time I open it and every time I read it, there's this whole new thing that jumps off the page. There's a freshness to it. And those of you that are followers of Christ who read the book, you'll agree with me. There's times maybe you've read it before, but you didn't read it with that insight. You didn't read it with that understanding because, in a new context and a new time, here it is saying to you a fresh thing. Even people will say to me sometimes, Pastor Jim, do, do you have a microphone in my living room? How do you know what's going on in my house, in my life? And the answer is, I don't. I ain't that smart. It's the book. The book does. It is the Word of God, the Bible. But the, the Bible doesn't just say it's remarkable, amazing, unprecedented, and unequal. It doesn't actually say that. What it says is this is the very Word of God. This is God's Word that's, that's ready, willing, and the best source to direct every area of your life. So is there evidence to support that claim? Is that possible? Well, let's look at three of those. First of all, scholars call it the historical evidence test. And that just simply says if it came from the God of the universe, the God who established history, then it ought to line up with history. That makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, if it's just a a list of rules and regulations, it doesn't really matter. But this book lists people and nations, and cultures, and, and kings, and, and people who really lived. And so, if it's true, then it ought to line up with, with history. There ought to be some evidence. And I, I'm here to tell you without hesitation, yeah, it passes that test with flying colors, e- even though critics have denied it for years. Let me give you a couple of examples of that one. The Bible talks about a nation called the Hittites. Critics have said for centuries that the Hittite A culture never existed. 1906, archaeologists finally uncovered the ancient Hittite city and it silenced those critics. The Bible talks about a king called Belshazzar of Babylon. Historians again said Belshazzar never existed. Uh, There was a king now uh, called Nepentus, but there was no Belshazzar. The Bible just made that up until 1956. When archaeologists found three Babylonian stone tablets, and on those tablets was listed the son of Nabonidus. His name was Belshazzar. Oh, we can get more current than that. I don't know if you know this or not, but until 1961, there was no historical evidence that Pontius Pilate ever actually existed. It wasn't until 61 that Italian archaeologist Antonio Prova discovered some tablets that identified the first century governor of Jerusalem. His name, you guessed it, was Pontius Pilate. I could go on, but I think you get the point. The Bible passes the historical test with flying colors. Then there's the social evidence test. Let me see if I can explain this one. Uh, There's some pretty wild events listed in Scripture, some some pretty amazing people events. For example, there's one story uh, when a guy named Lazarus died and four days later when his body had already started decomposing, Jesus spoke and Lazarus came back to life. That's pretty amazing stuff. There's another story in the book where, where this guy named Peter actually swung his leg over the side of the boat and walked on the water uh, after Jesus had just fed 5,000 hungry men plus women and children, maybe 10, 15,000 people from one little boy's lunch. I mean, it's pretty amazing kind of stories. Think about it for a minute. I got a call from the Goldsboro News Argus newspaper this week, and this reporter was writing an article on whether churches were going to be meeting this week, and he wanted to know what our plan was as a church. And I said, well, we're going to respect Governor Cooper's request. Uh, that we not meet physically, but we're going to meet online. And so I described to him our online services, and I'm thrilled to say that uh, that you're here and you're watching with us right now. And, and and I know that other churches who were not able to provide this service, many of you are with us as well, listening to the Word of God. And so we're excited. We're thrilled about this opportunity to use this technology for the kingdom of God. But think with me for a minute. If I finished that conversation with that uh, newspaper reporter and I said, oh, oh before I let you go, uh, could, I, could I tell you a quick story that you might be interested in, in hearing? The, the, and the reporter might say, well, okay, sure. Say, well, I just wanted you to know that this past week a flaming chariot from the sky came and a bag the size of Santa Claus, a bag full of food, came and fed everybody ribeye, steaks, and baked potatoes, the entirety of our county, what would the reporter say? He would say, "Mm, I'm going to need a few eyewitnesses to corroborate that story before I print it, and if I can't find any eyewitnesses, then he's going to write a story about this crazy preacher who's absolutely lost his mind. You better avoid that guy like the plague, right? because you need some eyewitnesses to corroborate it. I don't know if you're tracking with me yet. Here's what Paul wrote about the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. I passed on to you what I received, of which this was most important, that Christ died for our sins, as the Scriptures say, that he was buried and was raised to life on the third day, as the Scriptures say and that he was seen by Peter and then by the 12 apostles. After that, Jesus was seen by more than 500 of the believers at the same time. Most of them are still living today. Are you tracking with me? You understand what Paul is saying? He's saying that the heart of this book is the fact that Jesus Christ came to give his life, to pay the price for our sin, the wages of sin, is death. He paid that wage in our place. The gift of God is eternal life. He made eternal life available to us. And Paul is saying that's the central message. And I can tell you that not only did the 12 disciples actually see him after he was raised from the dead, but there were at least 500 people on one particular occasion that witnessed him being uh, alive. And many of them are still around. You can ask them. They are eyewitnesses. So if somebody coming along in that period would have said, well, that's, that's pretty far-fetched. The, the man died, and then, then he came back to life. I, I just don't know if I can believe that or not. Then all they had to do was say, well, you, uh, my uncle was there. Would you like to talk to him? Because he, he saw it for, with his own eyes. I mean, he, he talked to Jesus himself after that point. You, you understand, the eyewitness is what makes the difference. The result of that is that the church uh, was born and exploded on the scene. 3,000 people accepted Christ on the first day the church was launched. 5,000 soon after... And many scholars say that of the 250,000 people that lived in Jerusalem and the areas surrounding Jerusalem, as many as 100,000 of them came to faith in Jesus Christ in a matter of a very short span of time. And then the church began to expand around the world and reach the known world in a single lifetime all the way to the household of Caesar himself because there were eyewitnesses to corroborate what the book said. It wasn't just... True because the book said it. It's true because there were plenty of people that saw it, experienced it, and were happy to share their story about it, which leads me to what is perhaps the most important test nowadays, and that is what I call the personal evidence test. We don't have eyewitnesses anymore. We have to depend on, on the book and history, to, to but we still have the potential of personal evidence evidence. I mean, if if this book is the Word of God, and it's inspired by Almighty God Himself, and if it's useful for teaching us how to live and and how to correct us when we're wrong and to get us on the right path, and and useful for us to be able to accomplish everything that that we ever need to do in life, then we ought to be able to get some results when we read it, learn it, and apply it, right? It's kind of like that old Excedrin commercial that we used to see where the guy came out, good looking, a young guy, a rugged guy, gets out on camera. They tried to get me to do the commercial, but I said I was busy. Uh, uh, they came out, and, uh, and he said, you know, the scientists tell me these statistics, and, and the doctors tell me those statistics. All I know is it works. That's what we want to know. Does it, does it work? And the answer to that question is how much time you got. I mean, I would love to parade hundreds of people across this stage to just come tell their story, and they could tell stories. They could tell stories about financial failure. They could talk about about marital failure. They could talk about physical health challenges. They could talk about all kinds of problems in their life, but when they got to the part of the story, addictions that began to define their life and their relationships, all kinds when they got to the part of the story, where they said, and then I met Jesus, you can see their countenance change. You can see their look began to change. I've met Jesus. And I started reading his love letter to me, and I started learning what the book said, and I, and I started applying what the book said, uh, not, not just for theology and doctrine, those things are important, not suggesting they're not, but, but as an owner's manual for living, as the instruction booklet for life. I started reading this book and I started rearranging my life according to doing life God's way. And man, has it made a difference. Things begin to change dramatically in my life ever since. Guys, the Bible passes the, pers- the personal experience test over and over and over again, but let's go even deeper, okay? Let's go even deeper. Aside from the general evidence that most people would agree with and aside from the specific evidence that we've just talked about that many people would be glad to attest to, uh, th- there are some, there's some internal evidences that I think are worth looking at. Let me mention three. One of the reasons we believe in the Bible is because the Bible says so. It, it tells you who it is. And what it is, more than 3,000 times the Bible says God spoke. Thus saith the Lord, it says. So, so here's the bottom line, guys. This is either the word of God or it's a lie. It, it, it can't be both. It's one or the other, and so we have to trust what it says or not. That's the decision point. The second internal evidence, though, is, is, is I believe it because of the men who wrote it. Uh, Sure, God gave it, he inspired it, but he used some pretty remarkable men to actually pen the words. Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, was the second in command of the most powerful nation on the earth, and he wasn't even an Egyptian, he was a Hebrew, and yet he gave it all up to lead a bunch of people into the desert to get to a promised land that God has promised. I don't know, it's kind of hard to call a guy who would give so much up a liar. Peter, who wrote three of the books of the New Testament and much of the Gospels and the book of Acts is about his life. This was a simple fisherman who, who gave up everything to follow Jesus. And at the end of his life, when he came to a place to be martyred for his faith, they were going to crucify him as Jesus would. And he said, no, 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 I'm not worthy to die the way my Lord did And they turned him upside down to nail him to the cross. It's really hard to dismiss a guy like that, willing to sacrifice at that level. The Apostle Paul, who wrote half of the New Testament, was highly educated, a leader in society, a wealthy man in his day, gave it all up to be shipwrecked, to be beaten, to be jailed, to ultimately be beheaded. I mean, how do you just say, eh, that guy made it up? People like that who, who made the ultimate sacrifices in order to get this message to us. I don't know about you, but it's difficult for me to say that they're anything but exactly who they said they were and that this book is anything but exactly what it says it is. Human beings imperfect like you and I who committed everything to get this message to But even if you could discount all of that, the bottom line is the Bible is what it says it is because it could only have come from God. There are so many things in this book that were prophetic, that were written hundreds of years in advance that there's no way it's possible that those things could have come from any other source than the one who sees the end from the beginning, the one who has been since the foundations of the world and beyond, who has no beginning or end. That's God himself. I mean, and details not just general predictions, but details. The book says 600 years before Jesus was born, where he would be born, the family he would be born to, even where he would live and where he would die, all hundreds of years before it actually happened, but not just where he would die, how he would die. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 22, 16, 17, 18, this gang of evil men circles me like a pack of dogs. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count every bone in my body. Yet these men of evil gloat and stare. They divide my clothes among themselves by a toss of the dice. Fast forward 600-plus years to the account of Jesus' death. Word for word, it's exactly how it transpired. I mean, are you really ready to dismiss all that evidence and say, yeah, it's probably a good book. It might be worth a read once in a while, but it's not going to be the moral compass of my life. Oh, no, no, I, 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 I prefer to make it up myself. I prefer to figure this out on my own. Are you really ready to dismiss a document that has stood the test of time with so much evidence, and we could go on for hours giving you more and more evidence, the bottom line is, are you ready to give it up? And perhaps even more importantly, if you are, what's your plan B? I mean, we've already established that, that we need a, a source for our moral compass in life. So, so what's your plan If it's not this book, my experience is most of the people who challenge this book are not challenging it because they don't believe in it. They don't think it's true. It has more to do with if I got serious about this thing, I'd probably have to take a hard look at my life. I mean, if I were to leave here today and and go find a, a gentleman's club somewhere and walk in and go to the microphone and say, okay, guys. Uh, I brought my Bible with me, and and so uh, there's a few things I'd really like to talk to you guys about. If you don't mind, can we turn the music down? And I'd just love to talk to you for a couple of minutes here about about morality, about decency, about self-respect. Anybody interested to hear what the Bible has to say on those kinds of subjects? How many of you think that they would say, awesome, man, I've been waiting for somebody to come tell me those things? I've been needing to know. No, that's not how it would go. But they wouldn't resist it because they don't believe it's true. They'd resist it because they know if they listened, there's changes in their lives they'd have to make. If they got serious about this book, they'd have to change their their values, their lifestyle, their behavior, their vocabulary. But let's not talk about them. Let's talk about us. Let's talk about me. What do you suppose would happen if, if I committed, if you committed, if we committed to read this book? To actually read it with a heart that says, I want to I wanna apply what I'm reading. I want to do my life this way. I'm going to study it and learn it and do my life this way. We're going to unpack that question during this series over the next couple of weeks. But for now, I'm going to close by simply saying, if you haven't committed your life to follow Jesus Christ yet, what are you waiting for? The God who knows you and loves you, who's well-established as the one who wrote the book that's well-established to be the only book that stood the test of time. What What are you waiting for? Can I beg you unashamedly, wherever you are right now watching me, that you just pause and say, thank you, Jesus, for dying for my sins. Thank you for loving me, even though I've been kind of thumbing my nose at you. Thank you for caring about my life, and thank you for giving me answers that work. I accept you. Would you give me a fresh start, a new life today? I mean, you can do that right now. You can do it out loud. You can do it silently. There's somebody with you. You can talk to them. But God's listening to your heart right now. For those of you who have committed your lives to Christ, when are you going to get serious about learning this book? When are you going to wait, quit waiting for the movie to come out? When are, to, when are you going to take the reading plan that's in the Bridge NC app and, and start reading the book? You know, it's a book that says you get a blessing just for reading it even if you didn't understand what you read. When are you going to get serious about this thing? I pray that you will because the word of God is useful for every good thing in your life. We need a moral compass. This one is true. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for caring enough about us to inspire 40-plus authors over a 1,500-year period to write a book, 66 books that link fluidly around the simple truth that you made us on purpose, with a purpose. You love us. You just want us to love you back. And I pray that each one of us in the quietness of this moment would just simply reflect on how much you love us and respond in Jesus name. Amen. If you prayed that prayer with me now and maybe it was the first time you've prayed a prayer like that, would you would you do me the honor of sending me a text? Just just text new life to 55498. New life 55498. Just text me. Let me know so we can be praying for you in the days ahead. If you're in our local area, we'd love to have the chance to minister to you. If you're not, we'll try to find a church in your area that can reach out to you so you can build relationships with other people who are on the same journey that you've begun today. But get started today, right here, right now, by telling somebody the prayer that you just prayed. Would you do that? I want to pray one more time before we uh, close out this service. I want to pray for our nation. I want to pray for those people that that are in harm's way right now, even during this pandemic, not just in America but across the world, I want to pray against the fear that seems to be rising up in our nation, that we would be not a people of, of fear but a people of sound mind. Would you join me in that prayer? Father, there is no problem greater than you. And we're trusting you here and now to work through every circumstance of not just the coronavirus but the flu that's going around and other debilitating diseases that are touching so many lives. We live in a world that's cursed by sin. We recognize that, but Satan, we bind you in Jesus' name from wreaking havoc in our world. God, you told us clearly through your apostle that you didn't give us a spirit of fear. You give us a spirit of love and of power and of a sound mind. So help us to be wise in our decisions, to not be foolish in the way we do things, but help us, Lord, not to live in fear during this season, but to unite our hearts to accomplish everything that you have in mind, even as you use this circumstance to bring men and women to you. Use us to bring the good news online and in person, wherever we go. In Jesus' name, and everybody said together, amen, amen. God bless you guys. Thanks so much for being with us at the bridge. Do press in and pray. Do be safe. Do be careful with all the things that are going on in our world these days. And I believe with everything in me, God's going to do some stuff. We'll look back on it one day and say, wow, look what God did. I trusted you do that. I'd love to see you again next Sunday.